the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us. Hope you enjoyed uh, John Hendraker from Powerline Blog sitting in for me yesterday. He was excellent as expected. And uh, so we begin tonight with uh, the president's words as well as the attorney general's words uh, on a conference call with governors Monday morning. Uh, Because uh, the focus, of course, is on Trump suggesting that if the governors and the mayors don't get control of their cities, then he will do it for them by using the U.S. military under the 1807 Insurrection Act, as well as really provided for in the Constitution. But uh, uh, regardless, uh, that has not been done yet. That is incentivizing, building upon the admonition to governors on that conference call I just referenced. So I want to start with uh, something that probably will be underreported, but shouldn't be underappreciated. And that's what President Trump said from the Rose Garden after uh, both he and Attorney General Barr had said it to the governors on that conference call about the organizers of the violence. I want the organizers of this terror to be on notice that you will face severe criminal penalties and lengthy sentences in jail. This includes Antifa and others who are leading instigators of this violence. One law and order, and that is what it is. One law. We have one beautiful law. And Attorney General Barr, again, on that conference call with the governor. So let's hear from somebody who speaks in legal parlance with some additional specificity on what he believes the state should be doing and how the Department of Justice will then work with state and local law enforcement to bring organizers to justice. Some of the common dimensions are we have the normal protesters, you have opportunistic people like looters, but in many places, if not most places, you have this ingredient of uh, extremist, anarchist types, agitators who are driving the violence. Law enforcement response is not going to work unless we dominate the streets, as the president said. We have to control the streets. If we treat these are demonstrations, the police are pinned back guarding places and don't have the dynamic ability to go out and arrest the troublemakers. They're just standing in a line watching the events. Then when they disperse the crowds, the crowds go running off in different directions and create havoc, going looting and other things. We have to control the crowds and not react to what's happening on the street. And that requires a strong presence. In many places, we think it will require the National Guard, but we need to have people in control of the streets so we can go out and work with law enforcement, state and local law enforcement, to identify these people in the crowds, isolate them, 
There's two important uh, points to be made uh, about what Attorney General Barr said, it seems to me. One is go after the organizers. Treat it like any other criminal organization where you work from the street level or the uh, bottom rung of the power structure to the top rung of the power structure. Take those people that are dropping off piles of rocks and bottles of human waste and other materials for the purposes of committing acts of violence and work up the chain to those who are calling the shots. And for those calling the shots, uh, prosecute them as domestic terrorists and have those individuals facing stiff federal jail sentences. And that will send a message that will reverberate around the country. That's number one. Seems to me the uh, second point is being specific, being surgical. Uh, This is what the left is not. Uh, There are protesters, peaceful, uh, petitioning their government, exercising their rights, and there are rioters. And even within the uh, those committing acts of violence, there are the one off opportunists, as you heard Barr say. And then there are the organizers and agitators promoting violence, exacerbating violence. And uh, this is important because uh, my perspective on this, if you weren't in a race war, if you didn't believe you were in a race war before this weekend, uh, you weren't and you're still not. It is a very small group of people having a disproportionate impact because their acts of violence, domestic terrorism, are being amplified by the press corps and contextualized while amplified. You know, explaining, you know, I oppose violence, you'll hear as the customary talking point, but I understand it. Well, actually, those people are either, are either lying or ignorant or some combination of the two. Um, they they don't understand it or they do understand the basis of it. And they're uh, I should say they don't understand it and they're pretending to understand the basis of it. You know, their typical sort of grievances about government not being uh, big enough. Um, or they they very well understand it and they're just lying, uh, lying about uh, their understanding. And the understanding is that our politics of identitarianism is this boiled down. You have a legitimate claim to power based on your identity, whether it's race, gender, orientation, some combination of all of the above intersectionality. You have a legitimate claim to power. And if you don't get what you demand, it's okay to burn it down. Burn down whatever institution is not giving you what you demand based on your identity and the legitimacy in their mind that your identity confers in terms of your demand. That's it. That's what's happening. Glenn Lowry uh, over at uh, Brown University, respected uh, economics professor at Brown, and somebody, by the way, who dates back to the civil rights era, just like our friend Bob Woodson, who we featured on the show on Friday. It's so important to me to to get uh, black leaders, academics, intellectuals that date back to the civil rights era because they have the standing that you can't confer. Uh, no matter what you write or how much you make, you can't confer being there and having led, uh, helped lead the uh, fight for civil rights back in the 60s. Bob Woodson can claim that. Glenn Lowry can, can, can claim that. Shelby Steele and others who broke with the identitarians that gave rise to our politics of today. 
And so their voices deserve to be amplified where possible. Uh, Glenn Lowry um, a saying of the of the violence, not only are theft, arson and violence immoral, they're also politically counterproductive. It should be obvious that the outrageous injustice apparently perpetrated against George Floyd, which deserves to be denounced in no uncertain terms, can in no way justify or excuse the criminal behaviors of those few who are using the chaos of mass protests as a cover for their sprees of looting, arson and mayhem. No civilized society can allow righteous anger to become a license for indulging one's basest instincts. So long as they continue, they must be forcefully condemned. He goes on to say, we uh, as Americans are in a very dangerous situation now. We stand on the brink of a widespread epidemic of civil unrest whose ultimate consequences are difficult to reckon. All it may take is just one political assassination, one mistaken shot fired by a nervous, frightened young National Guardsman confronting a raucous mob, one enraged immigrant shopkeeper who guns down a black youngster trying to loot his store for all hell to break loose. The dry tinder lies at hand, needing only a spark to start a conflagration. There are opportunities in our midst opportunists in our midst who would hope this might be so rioting plays into their hands, which is why I insist that progressive intellectuals who make excuses for violent protests, even in the face of the awful killing of George Floyd are making a monumental moral and political error. Well, um, I mean, I concur with Glenn Lowry's uh, thoughtful and well-conceived argument. They're making a moral and intellectual error, but is it an error from their perspective? Or is it purposeful? I mean, is is the Black Lives Matter mantra of pigs in a blanket fry them like bacon? And uh, all of the other expressions of hate and uh, hate for hate generally, hate for white people, hate for America that you saw tagged on statues and storefronts around the country, in addition to the actual violence uh, beyond that. Is that not the purpose? Don't they want to spark a revolution, the identitarians I'm talking about? And aren't they willing to do it by any means necessary? These are not the descendants of Martin Luther King, Reverend Martin Luther King and the civil disobedience crowd, are they? Uh, one, more on this uh, when we come back, including uh, some examples of just exactly those progressive intellectuals of whom Glenn Lowry, Professor Lowry, was speaking. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we were talking uh for a segment about uh, going after the organizers of the rioting and you uh, heard some selections from uh, Glenn Lowry, a uh, Brown University economics professor and who dates back to the civil rights movement of the 60s, a black gentleman and scholar, about uh, progressive intellectuals contextualizing, if not outright condoning, the violence. 
Uh, let me give you an example of what he's talking about. No better example than uh, the freshly minted Pulitzer Prize winner and fictionalist, ironically, Nicole Hannah-Jones. This the uh, this individual, the the one of the founders of the 1619 Project to rewrite American history and reestablish America's founding in 1619, the first uh, the year in which the first slave came to Northern Virginia. Uh, this is a group and an individual who believes that uh, racism is hardwired into America's DNA. And so there can never be enough apology and there can never be enough recompense or restitution because of its intrinsic racism, meaning America's, meaning white societies. Here's what Nicole Hannah-Jones had to say about the rioting over the weekend. I would not describe looting as violence. Looting uh, is property damage, but it is not violence. And I would actually like to go to Martin Luther King's own words. He uh, wrote a letter to the American Psychological Association in September of 1967. And what he said is that looting uh, comes from the most enraged and deprived Negro and it allows them to take hold of consumer goods with the ease that a white man does by using his purse. Often the Negro does not even want what he takes. He wants the experience of taking. Negroes have committed crimes, but they are the derivative crimes, and they are born of the greater crimes of the white society. So when we ask Negroes to abide by the law, let us also demand that the white man abide by the law in the ghettos as well. So I think we need to have some perspective on what exactly we're seeing when we call that violence and looting. It's not violence and looting, what you saw over the weekend. It's symbolic taking. Because it's still 1967 America. This is the key point to me in the takeaway. For, forget the Orwellian language change for a second. Reading from Martin Luther King's letter in 1967 and, uh, and taking it out of context while manufacturing context for the violence going on now. And, of course, that's what Nicole Hannah-Jones does. That's what she's done with American history in the 1619 Project, roundly decried by scholars across the political spectrum who know something about American history, but that doesn't matter to the Pulitzer Committee. So she's still credentialized and somebody we're supposed to take seriously. Certainly Christiane Amanpour, who interviewed her, does. 1967. Uh, right, that's well, that's three years removed from the uh, Civil Rights Act, so everything was hunky-dory. No, of course not. Of course not. We're coming out of day jury segregation, Jim Crow. Uh, I mean, the the uh, Boston busing violence happened in 1974, a decade after, you know, legislation was passed to animate segre- uh, to, to animate integration, desegregation. Seventy four redlining as a matter of course of the black community going on into the 70s. And, you know, some would argue well beyond that, but. But certainly the Community Reinvestment Act of the late 70s, uh, and I don't want to have a a whole discussion on that. That's another time for another day in terms of uh, misapplying the wrong remedy, which is what that was. But that was a response to the customary practice of redlining. It's just like Brown v. Board of Education hasn't lived up to the promise 60 years later, 65 years later of uh, ending separate but equal in a de facto sense with respect to K through 12 education. So you can have a Supreme court case, you can pass a law and then there's the implementation. So King is writing that in 67 and 
Nicole Hannah-Jones wants it to be 1963 Selma in America forever because that's how you perpetuate the victimology racket. That's how you advance the identitarian flag. So there's the contextualizing. And here's, this is quite a statement too. Joshua Johnson, who's a fungible MSNBC anchor, on with a fungible Meet the Press anchor, Chuck Todd, that little yapping terrier, Meet the Press over the weekend, saying this about uh, the weekend's violence around the nation. And then the idea that you could have a few people who break a few windows and burn a few cars and then militarize the whole nation's law enforcement infrastructure, it just shows how very tenuous things are right now. I don't know that the protesters are the problem. I don't even know that the law enforcement officers are the problem necessarily, but the expectation we set on them, on what normal should be, that may be the issue, whether normal is keeping quiet in the streets or whether normal is upholding the Constitution and giving people the right to speak their mind, even if speaking their mind means cussing you out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, the knowing yes. Mm-hmm. It's from Chuck Todd. Um, nothing Joshua Johnson said squares with the facts. Who is preventing peaceful protesters from uh, expressing themselves, from petitioning their government, from lodging their grievances? No one. It's not happening. I mean, to the extent that the violence individuals are mixed in with the peaceful protesters, you could have some confusion, but no one is suggesting that peaceful protesters shouldn't be allowed to peacefully protest. That's a straw man. And in terms of the, a few people breaking a few windows, burning a few cars, just in my home city of Chicago, which is on, you know, basically martial law style lockdown as of Sunday, late to the dance as usual, the passivity of the response from the big city mayors and blue state governors. But uh, there were 27 people killed and 92 people shot in Chicago just this weekend. Just Chicago. And that doesn't take into account four cops shot in St. Louis, a cop shot in the head in Nevada who's in critical condition, a black uh, contract security officer, federal security officer who was assassinated in Oakland. And Joshua Johnson calls this what you've seen, the images you've seen around the country, and, of course, spreading out into suburban hamlets as well, not just reserved for big cities. He calls that a few few, uh, broken windows. A few people and a few broken windows. Again, I said, as I said before the break, it's a small group of people. It is not representative. No question about that. But to uh, minimize the kind of human carnage as well as property damage uh, and the, some of the more disgraceful vandalism, uh, you know, works of art like the Lincoln Memorial, Uh, To minimize that rather than call it what it is, is terribly troubling and telling. You're listening to The Dan Prop Show.
You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Before we get to our friend Andy McCarthy, some comments that Attorney General Bill Barr made on a conference call the president did with the 50 governors uh, yesterday morning. It's important to listen to what uh, the attorney general said about the approach that should be taken from a DOJ perspective and the help that DOJ can provide uh, per the recommended approach. Some of the common dimensions are we have the normal protesters, you have opportunistic people like looters, but in many places, if not most places, you have this ingredient of extremist, anarchist types, agitators who are driving the violence. Law enforcement response is not going to work unless we dominate the streets, as the president said. We have to control the streets. If we treat these as demonstrations, the police are pinned back guarding places and don't have the dynamic ability to go out and arrest the troublemakers. They're just standing in a line watching the events. Then when they disperse the crowds, the crowds go running off in different directions and create havoc, going looting and other things. We have to control the crowds and not react to what's happening on the street. And that requires a strong presence. In many places, we think it will require the National Guard, but we need to have people in control of the streets so we can go out and work with law enforcement, state and local law enforcement, to identify these people in the crowds, isolate them, and pull them out and prosecute them. Uh, for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review and author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, thanks for joining us. And so um, your reaction to what Attorney General Barr had to say? Well, he's right. It seems because of this situation that we're dealing with like this feels new because this kind of chaos happily is something we haven't had to deal much with in I grew up in the Bronx in the 60s and 70s, which was uh, was pretty bad back then. But we've had a real renaissance of law and order for about a generation. So this is, in the living memory of a lot of people, this is a first, what we're seeing now. But it does seem to me that we dealt with this kind of weighing a lot in the onslaught of jihadist violence in the 90s into the 9-11 attacks and beyond. Because what we were always wrestling with is are we in a state of peace or a state of war? You know, we called the terrorism response the war on terror, but it really was not a wartime response. The country was not invested in it as if it were a real war, like the Second World War, say. But the reason that's so important is because there are certain assumptions that exist when you're in domestic peacetime that are different from when you're in wartime. In wartime, for example, if it gets bad enough, you get martial law because the courts are not open and functioning. The government services can't function. And the only way that you can have any semblance of the rule of law is for the military to basically take over the streets and provide security. We don't realize that most of the time because we've been fortunate to be in domestic peacetime for in excess of 30 years. And what that means is that it's everyone's operating assumption that if you commit a crime, the laws are going to be enforced uh, because the climate that's been created is a climate of law and order. That's when you know we can really thrive as a society and uh, when we can have uh, economic flourishing as well. 
but we don't notice that until it's gone. But by taking that rhetorical position, though, what Trump is really doing is raising the profile at Antifa and essentially suggesting federal resources are going to be devoted to interdicting this organization. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you can't you have to make a threshold decision of how you're going to treat something before you address it. Right. So, you know, if you decided that, you know, let's say you had a big mafia organized crime family that committed an array of different crimes. If you said we're just going to treat this as gambling then you'd be missing a lot, right? Hmm. And the same thing with terrorism. They have to, they commit a lot of crimes in the course of carrying out terrorist attacks and the kind of stuff that we've been seeing on the streets. I think you have to upfront say, this is terrorism and, and take it head on as terrorism and treat it that way and regard them that way. And that's much more important than saying you're going to designate them. I, I pointed out that when we prosecuted the blind shake in the early 90s, after the bombing of the World Trade Center, and they plotted to bomb other stuff in New York, the designation process didn't even exist yet. You know, that that happened later in the 90s, and it didn't affect us a whit. We were able to do everything we needed to do, including regard them as terrorists and charge them uh, under American law, where we were able to write indictments. We, we charge them with a crime that is uh, that prohibits conspiracies to levy war against the United States, and we were able to frame it as a terrorist war on America. So there's plenty of law that we have already to deal with this, but you're right, the resolve to deal with it this way and, and the decision to deal with them as terrorists has to be made up front. When we come back with NRO's Andy McCarthy, let's uh, tackle what President Trump and Attorney General Barr said regarding targeting the organizers of the riots. More with Andy McCarthy. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with. Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor and contributing editor at National Review. And uh, yesterday, President Trump and uh, Bill Barr both were explicit about something, the organizers of the violence. Uh, That says we're going to work up from the street level thugs providing supplies of rocks and bottles of human waste and whatnot to the people that are actually uh, calling the shots, just like any criminal organization. So we get to the organizers where you can impose some real sanction and send people away for some real hard time uh, to send a real message to uh, the country about organizers of this sort of violent, violent unrest. Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, we've had nothing but bad news. Let me give you a little bit of good news. These organizations, these organizations don't have the, uh, the regiment of, of the military and they don't have the discipline of an organized crime family where, you know, the, the highest leaders are very, very insulated and it's hard to get at them. Right. This is this is not that. So if they make a determination, you know, and, and real resolve to go after this as a terrorist organization, they'll be able to peel it back quick. But as the attorney general said, rule one, you know, law enforcement can't do this. Rule one is you have to get control of the streets and reimpose law and order again because otherwise the the police are pinned back on their heels. Law enforcement can't impose 
order on the street if it's been lost. So the first thing that has to happen is order has to be restored, and then you can get back to aggressive law enforcement. But you can't – if the police are having to you know, play play defense all the time, um, you know, an aggressive, offensive strategy for attacking terrorism is not possible because you're using all your resources uh, and they're too paltry to get the job done to actually have order on the street and allow people to conduct their everyday lives. Right now we're, we've lost that in a few places. And you uh, also, in uh, your piece on this, uh, wrote about the lesser included charge, uh, charges and uh, why that's important just in terms of the perspective, gleaning perspective from the prosecutor. Yeah, well, it's clear now, especially after you listen to Biden yesterday, that we're going to have a real issue about whether the knee to the neck had a real proximate causative uh, effect on Mr. Floyd's death or whether it was something that kind of contributed to the triggering of underlying conditions because he had a hypertensive heart condition and the like. And the reason I thought the, the manslaughter count, if you're a prosecutor, you put it in there, is because with the depraved heart count, it's, it's a harder case. I'm not saying it's an impossible case. I think they can win the case, but it's a harder case if you can't prove that the chokehold or, or the equivalent of it, the needed the neck thing, that that directly caused him to die. That ma- that makes it a harder case. But if it's if it's got a contributory uh, aspect to it, which it clearly did, the the negligent murder count, which is a ten year count, uh, factors that in, and it's not as hard to prove. So I think they're just covering their their bases to make sure that this guy gets convicted. But it go- it does go to the point of it's a harder case on the three police officers who are not as culpable. And, and and just on the the competing autopsies, because this was, you know, sort of been batted about in the press, right. generally ignorantly, which is what you expect. Um, as a matter of law, this is important. You were just describing. But but uh, but but we also don't have a full appreciation for all the underlying conditions because it's a little murky as to whether or not there were toxins in his system in addition to his uh, hypertension heart condition. Yep. Yeah. And all of that is going to play itself out in the trial. You know, we we uh, we sometimes because a complaint filed by the police, which is descriptive, as this one is, is a public document. We kind of give it an authority that it maybe doesn't rate. Uh, the fact of the matter is an indictment or a complaint is just a an accusation and they have to go into court and prove it. And it looks like there's going to be multiple theories of how this guy how how death took place here. Um, I don't think any of them redound to the to the benefit of Chauvin, the guy, you know, the main the officer, cop former who, officer, who, right? Who's charged uh, either, on either on any interpretation of the of the physical evidence or the forensic evidence I've heard so far, he's guilty. Mm-hmm. Uh, question is, is he guilty of depraved heart or is he guilty of the misdemeanor? But it's not. I'm, I shouldn't say misdemeanor. It's not a misdemeanor. Is he guilty of the manslaughter homicide count rather than the murder homicide count? But one is a 10-year count and one's a 25-year count. I mean, this this is a serious felony. Uh, and before I let you go, I wanted to get your uh, constitutional interpretation of what the president said last night. Uh, he has the power to scramble the U.S. military uh, under the 1807 Insurrection Act, it would appear. Um, but it, would it be judicious at this point to do so? Uh, you know, with the National Guard just sort of being deployed in so many places at present? 
Yeah, you know, it's a it's a big country, and and conditions are different uh, in different places and in different hotspots. The Constitution gives him not only the authority but the obligation to guarantee the states uh, protection from insurrection, uh, and the the Insurrection Act gives him very broad authority legally to call in the National Guard and dispatch the military to the extent it's necessary to restore order on the street. That said, as a practical matter, uh, it's very important that the federal and state authorities work cooperatively with each other. And what I thought was really disturbing yesterday is that they seem to be preparing the ground to blame each other politically for failure. And the message that that conveys to the streets is that there's no order on the street. So it would be much better if they seemed, and the reality was that they were working cooperatively. Being at loggerheads is really bad right now. Uh, Great. I'm going to cut this little clip and send it to my home state governor, J.B. Pritzker, so he gets a little bit of a tutorial on the law as well as the uh, law enforcement. He is Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney and contributing editor to National Review, author of the bestseller, Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, always a pleasure. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Earlier in the hour, I mentioned the uh, rioting and the violence radiating out from the big cities to suburban areas in uh, metropolitan regions of the country. That certainly did happen. And there were some sheriffs, uh, law enforcement professionals, who got more aggressive in their messaging to the would-be rioters uh, were they to want to visit particular locales. Perhaps none more aggressive than Grady Judd, the Sheriff of Polk County, Florida, so the Lakeland, Florida area, who had um, this to say about uh, his residents' uh, affinity for guns, just so you know. We have received information on social media that some of the criminals were going to take their criminal conduct into the neighborhoods. I would tell them if you value your life, you probably shouldn't do that in Polk County because the people of Polk County like guns. They have guns. I encourage them to own guns. And they're going to be in their homes tonight with their guns loaded. And if you try to break into their homes to steal, to set fires, I'm highly recommending they blow you back out of the house with their guns. So leave the community alone. And uh, he continued. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off 
You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? I hope for their sake uh, none of those uh, rioters felt lucky uh, in terms of lucky thinking they were going to be lucky enough to survive Poe County. Uh, yeah, it turns out that uh, Inspector Harry Callahan retired from San Francisco and moved to Poe County, Florida, it would seem. In addition to that, just one other note on the protesters and the rioters, and there are two different categories, as I'm going to continue repeating. So on the rioters here, because over the weekend it was white supremacists, Russian agents, drug cartelists. That's something else that Governor Wall said in Minnesota. In Hennepin County, we've got some arrest data received by jail. These are the numbers. But to give you a sense, this is this, uh, concurrent with Tim Walls, the governor there, saying it was, you know, white supremacists, drug cartelists. And uh, he didn't say Russian agents, but Susan Rice did. So, um, you know, might as well throw them in. Minnesota residents, 56, Illinois, three, Arkansas, one, Missouri, one, Iowa, one, Florida, one, Michigan, one. Well, um, boy, there sure are a lot of white supremacists, drug cartelists and Russian agents in Minnesota. A lot of white supremacists apparently uh, put uh, Ilhan Omar in in Congress in the House. Such a joke. So dishonest. Yes, there are organized agitators and there are those coming in from outside. And there's also some uh, uh, indigenous individuals in these cities and states who are taking the opportunity or part of uh, one of these far left groups that are involved in the violence, too. Let's just be honest with ourselves, shall we? This is Dan Proffitt. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. You can follow us at danprofshow.com. You can podcast the program there. You can also get them at uh, iTunes and Spotify, at Dan Prof Show on uh, social media, Facebook and Twitter. Getting uh, more data in from around the world as uh, some countries have moved with significantly more alacrity to reopen than certain states in America, like my home state of Illinois. Back to school. In the last six weeks, more than 20 countries have started to reopen schools. And uh, looking at those countries, only three, Madagascar, Vietnam, and uh, Chechia, have seen the possibility of a new trend in daily cases. In countries where school has been open for younger kids, 2 to 12, say in Denmark, which uh, opened uh, school and daycare back in April 15th, they have seen no increase in infections over the interceding six weeks. The same goes for Finland. So there's on school openings as the debate rages in this country. And again, as was suggested by many, including even Dr. Tony Fauci, uh, the reopening of schools may end up being and probably will be a community by community program, not a state by state program. Makes some sense. That's sort of how education works, generally speaking, local control. In addition to this, uh, some interesting observations out of Italy, northern Italy, where the head of uh, a hotel in Milan in the northern region of Lombardy that was the epicenter of the outbreak in Italy, uh, saying the disease is weakening 
The swabs that were performed over the last 10 days showed a viral load in quantitative terms that was absolutely infinitesimal compared to the ones carried out a month or two months ago, said the head of San Rafael Hospital in Milan. We uh, learn new things on a daily basis about uh, this virus. So this, of course, prompts the question of whether perhaps it's punching itself out, even as we reported last week, Oxford AstraZeneca researchers, those working on that uh, vaccine and that uh, vaccine group, sort of in the bizarre situation of rooting for the virus to stick around a little bit longer in the U.K. because they need more patients for their clinical trials. Hmm. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by Ovik Roy, co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity and senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center, as well as editor for Forbes Opinion, a man who wears many hats. Ovik, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, how are you? Good. Um, why don't we start with... Um, the uh, virus itself and that report out of Italy. Uh, and again, that's that's, you know, one head of one hospital in northern Italy. But it is provocative. Nonetheless, the idea that uh, as time goes on, the strength of the virus may weaken. Well, the way I would put it is it's not exactly that the, the virus itself will weaken. It's just that the most susceptible people get knocked out early. And this is something we see with viral infections throughout history is that the people who are most vulnerable to severe illness and death, they get hit right away. And the people who either are able to push back the virus because their immune systems are more robust or because they have immunity through some other means, those people tend to be the ones that the virus encounters later on. And as a result, the virus basically fades out over time. That's what we see with viral infections all the time. And it wouldn't be surprising to see it here. Well, and it would be interesting, I mean, as you suggested, to dig into the numbers a little bit to, and, and the, uh, the profiles a little bit to see if you see a, a weakening of the virus among sort of similarly situated uh, vulnerable groups, right? Somebody with uh, the same comorbidity from a month ago as, to, as compared to today might be, might be uh, instructive. Yeah, I mean, you know, and look, there are there are indications that there are a number of different strains of this virus, that the strain that came to the U.S. from Europe is a lot stronger and more potent than the strain that came to the U.S. from Asia on the West Coast. And that may be why the East Coast is seeing a, a worse pandemic than the West Coast, even though Washington State was where we saw the first couple of cases here. Uh, we don't know, that's the, but, but there is some preliminary evidence out of it. All, all that to say, like, look, the bottom line and, and, and what you led with with this segment is there is an enormous amount of evidence at this point as to who's most susceptible to severe illness and death from SARS-CoV-2, the virus. And we should be, instead of locking down the entire economy, except to protesters, I guess, we should be really uh, targeting our protection for the people who really need it. We know in the U.S. that 42% of the people who've died of COVID-19 are people who live in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. And that the percentage of America that lives in those kinds of facilities is 0.6%, mm. meaning 42% of the population that's died from COVID-19 live is, is it's happening in 0.6 percent of the population so let's focus on that let's focus on protecting the 0.6 percent that's most vulnerable vulnerable seniors with health problems who live in those kinds of facilities and let's not have this universal one-size-fits-all lockdown in which kids can't go to school even though they're at almost no risk not no not zero risk but almost zero risk of dying from COVID-19. And by, by almost zero, I mean one in a million, one in two million. Those are the kinds of proportions we're talking about. And, um, and let's also learn from 
mistakes that were made, would you say, like reintroducing those who were infected back into nursing homes that some governors did? Yeah, I mean, look, that that is a serious problem. And in my Forbes piece about uh, the nursing home COVID problem, I talk about this, about some of the different states and how they've handled this. We all know about, or at least your listeners know about, New York's Governor Mar- uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whit- Whitmer is another one who's continuing to yeah, force yeah. Uh, nursing homes to accept hospitals. But, but there's several other states that are doing it. New Jersey's still doing it. Uh, Connecticut, um, I, if I recall correctly, Pennsylvania. Um, so there's a number of these states that have been forcing nursing homes to accept COVID-infected hospital patients, and they're suffering the consequences. We still don't have data from Michigan. This is the, the most uh, amazing thing is that we now at freeop.org, we've actually compiled data from all but three states. We, we worked hard to get the states that weren't disclosing the data to report it, and now there are only three states that are not reporting nursing home deaths from COVID-19, Michigan, Missouri, and South Dakota. But Michigan's the most important because it's the largest state and it's had the worst outbreak. And it's the state with the most aggressive lockdown. Well, it, it's sort of remarkable, too. I mean, um, is it just because Ron DeSantis did it that they don't want to learn any of the lessons from Florida, for example? DeSantis credited for uh, early intervention with respect to uh, long-term care facilities. Yeah, I mean, Ron DeSantis deserves an enormous amount of credit. And I write about this in the Forbes piece for a lot of different reasons. One, most important, he chose the right policy. He left. Uh, he, lo- he let uh, the local governments in South Florida, in the Miami area, lock down totally or more aggressively. But the rest of Florida stayed mostly open. Uh, but he did a lot to protect nursing homes. He prevented hospitals from discharging COVID-infected patients into nursing homes, and that meant that the number of nursing home fatalities in Florida is far, far lower. Particularly when you consider the number of elderly people who live in Florida, that share of deaths from nursing homes is much, much lower in Florida than it is in the Northeast. And he did that at a time when there was enormous, enormous media pressure on him to do it a different way, right? If he didn't, if he, he, if, if he didn't do what New York was going to do, he was told that he was going to be, he was pro-death. He was part of a death cult. Right. And instead he resisted all that, filed the data, and he has the results to show for it. Really an impressive performance. I wanted to uh, get uh, your review of of this uh, piece that you wrote about independent primary care practices, because, of course, one of the the ironies about uh, flatten the curve to protect the integrity of the healthcare system in America is that the lockdown has jeopardized the very integrity of that same very healthcare system. And and you talk about um, how independent primary care practices can't survive uh, coming out of the lockdown and how important it is that they do. Well, let me, before I answer that, let me step back and, and talk about our first foray into COVID-19 policy writing at freeop.org at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Because in early April, we published a detailed reopening plan. Right. And, and a core part of our case was that small businesses in general have between a couple of weeks and a month of cash on hand, meaning if they, if they have no revenue because they have no customers coming into their, their stores, um, they're going to go out of business basically in a month because that's how much cash in reserve they've got. Well, small physician practices are small businesses too. And so when you've got a physician who's got a small office that maybe employs four or five people and he's got several hundred or thousand patients and those patients aren't showing up because they're told they can't leave their house, well, guess what? Your local primary care physician is going to go out of business too. And that's one of the big dangers of the current system. So that's why I wrote that article in Forbes that you're referring to, where we talk about that. We say, hey, look, if you're a primary care physician 
uh, and you're and you're losing business hand over fist because patients aren't showing up. At least with primary care physicians, there's now another option, which is what we used to call concierge medicine, direct primary care, where you can have your patients pay a small monthly fee, 50 bucks, 80 bucks, 100 bucks a month, to use your services, and in that way you have stable revenue where they come, whether they come in or not, and that's good for them because they get more time with you, and it's good for you because you're not running around spending only five minutes with a patient so you can bill the government or the insurance company as much as you possibly can. He is Ovik Roy, co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, as he mentioned, senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center and editor for Forbes Opinion. Ovik, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and um, switching gears from a talk of covid19 with Ovik roy to a talk of uh, reparations, uh, this from an interview that uh, BET founder and billionaire uh, Bob Johnson, Robert Johnson, who is a black gentleman, if you're not familiar with his work, uh, interview he gave to Brett Baer last night in advance of the president's comments from the Rose Garden. Bob Johnson has advanced a reparations plan, $350,000 one-time payment to 42 million descendants of slaves, Factoring in income, education, savings, and home ownership. That's a $14.7 trillion price tag. And uh, as I said, Bob Johnson explaining the basis for it because he sees the great threat to the American fabric as income inequality and particularly income equality along the racial fault lines. Here's Mr. Johnson. Taxpayers will pay for this because, for two reasons, particularly. One, it is a, an atonement for 200 plus years of slavery, desegregation, I mean, segregation, Jim Crowism, and denial of equal opportunity rights. But the result of that payment would be to bring African Americans equal to white Americans in terms of opportunity, wealth, and income. So instead of looking at it as a payment, look at it as an investment in 40 million African-Americans who deserve equal treatment and equal opportunity. And much of that investment, as if you were looking at any other kind of investment, will come back to this country in the form of African-Americans taking the responsibility to build their communities, to build their families, to become uh, successful business people and entrepreneurs, to pay taxes, to contribute yeah. to the society as they've done always, even without this form of compensation. But unless white right. America recognizes the need for reparations to atone for this, this country will always be, as the current commission report said, separate and unequal. Huh. Well, um, I certainly respect Robert Johnson and all that he accomplished, his business success. And certainly it's unfortunate that there is not more high profile black entrepreneurs to uh, 
say, there's the model, do what Bob Johnson did, do what other successful black entrepreneurs have done. I think there are more than they're perceived to be because the focus is always on blacks in a political context rather than a business context for some reason. Well, I think I know what the reason is, but, and, and, and by the way, that's the white media, their focus. And I'll get to what Bob Johnson had to say about to Joe Biden in a minute, but just on this matter of reparations. So the idea that it's just a money problem that flies in the face of um, what we've done as well as an analysis on what we've done every step of the way. In 1965, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, a liberal New York senator, issued the report on the state of the black family. I mean, termed the Negro family at the time. This is 1965. Talking about the disintegration of the black family and what that may portend if the disintegration continues. And about 20 years later, Charles Murray, the social scientist, wrote Losing Ground talking about the ravages of the welfare state less than 20 years in. And now almost 60 years in, the Great Society and $30 trillion later, we're still hearing the separate but unequal. Brown v. Board of Education was decided in 1954. Why are the so many of the schools and urban centers so bad at educating children? And just based on the record, right? I mean, is that arguable? Is it just money? Or maybe it's it's instead of spending money through government and employing more minorities in government, some say you just give them that one time cash payment of three hundred fifty grand in their pockets. Okay, but if uh, and I'm I'm saying this just based on the statistics. Yes, some people will take that three hundred fifty thousand dollars in seed capital and multiply it many times over. No, I'm sure that's true, and many others will not. And why will the others who? Why will some who don't? Why won't they? Why can't they? Because all of these other systems that have been set up and the spend has not returned anything or much of anything on the investment, has it? I mean, it, Bob Johnson is essentially conceding that the uh, elimination of separate uh, and, and equal, which was the principle that was discarded in the Brown v. Board of Education case, 60 years later, 65 years later, um, that hasn't happened. But it's going to happen now with another $14 trillion. Okay. Well, and, and what do we do with the welfare state? Has the welfare state been a net uh, positive or net negative? The $14 trillion, is that on top of the money that we can t- continue to spend in the welfare state? And by the way, that's across the board, all of the entitlements, which represent about 70% of all federal spending. Maybe we should have done what Bob Johnson suggested in 1965 instead of the Great Society. Somebody proposing that, I think, would uh, perhaps be more intellectually honest based on what we've returned for what we've spent through federal, state, and local governments over that 55-year period. Hmm. Um, We just keep having the same conversation. Uh, Maybe, I guess, that's what people mean when they say, let's have an honest conversation about race, but I don't know if they're really interested. I mean, let's just listen to this short clip. 1982 documentary on PBS. Okay. Uh, About uh, the housing projects in Chicago, Cabrini Green and Robert Taylor at the time, the largest housing project in the world. And listen to what one social scientist said about what these housing projects were doing. A large number of social misfits in the inner city, which will prey on the larger community later on. 
it's, it's a vicious environment in which we live. Vicious environment in which we live. You're creating social misfits, which will prey on larger community later on. You can't have large swaths of big, dense urban centers destroyed uh, significantly through the policy choices that were made by those in charge and pretend that the entire city, an entire state, an entire region won't be impacted ultimately. And that's a little bit of what we're seeing. And remember, these are policies by design. This was an accident. Policies by design supported by the left. Chicago has seen a hundred years of uninterrupted Democrat politician, political control. Uh, and most of the other big cities in America have seen generational control effectively by one party and one philosophy as well. And what has it produced? According to Bob Johnson, we're still separate but unequal. So whose failure is that? And if they failed and that philosophy and the policies that flow from it are failures, then why don't we reverse course and do the one thing we know and Bob Johnson knows, because that's how he became a billionaire. The one thing that produces wealth and opportunity. In fact, it made America the wealthiest country the world has ever seen, which is what? Advanced policies that support free minds and free markets. But that's the one thing all of these big city and blue state, big city mayors and blue city and blue state governors won't do. And I'd like to hear Bob Johnson's comments on that. This is Dan Proud. Would you rescue me? Would you get my back? Would you take my call when I start to crack? Would you rescue me? Uh-huh. Would you rescue me? Would you rescue me? You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. President Trump addressing the nation from the Rose Garden yesterday about the rioting that occurred over the weekend in uh, cities big and small throughout the country, calling uh, the acts of violence domestic terrorism. These are not acts of peaceful protest. These are acts of domestic terror. The destruction of innocent life and the spilling of innocent blood is an offense to humanity and a crime against God. America needs creation, not destruction. Cooperation, not contempt. Security, not anarchy. And uh, needs leadership from governors and mayors. And if uh, they won't lead to ensure they have control of their streets and people are safe, then um, he'll fix it for them, said the president. That is why I am taking immediate presidential action to stop the violence and restore security and safety in America. I am mobilizing all available federal resources, civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting, to end the destruction and arson, and to protect the rights of law-abiding Americans, including your Second Amendment rights. Therefore, the following measures are going into effect immediately. First, we are ending the riots and lawlessness that has spread throughout our country. We will end it now. Today, I have strongly recommended to every governor to deploy the National Guard in sufficient numbers that we dominate the streets. Mayors and governors must establish an overwhelming law enforcement presence until the violence has been quelled. 
If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Josh Holmes, president of Cavalry LLC, a political consulting firm, and a former chief of staff and campaign manager for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Josh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. So uh, this was a uh, a call that uh, was probably a day or two in the making. And again, the president hasn't done anything yet, but certainly rhetorically, he's sending a message that he sent on a conference call to mayors earlier in the day that uh, you need to get control of the streets. You need to restore order. You need to use the National Guard as necessary. And if you don't, then we at the federal level will come over the top. Is that the right call? Yeah, I think what he's reacting to, Dan, is the early stages of the unrest across the country that morphed very quickly from peaceful protests into something far more dangerous. And I think in particular with Minneapolis on Friday night uh, or Thursday night of last week when you saw uh, a police precinct being burned to the ground and the local officials, the mayor and, and the governor of Minnesota essentially saying, you know, we didn't want to endanger any citizens. Well, I think it's a foreign concept to to most people across the country that burning a police precinct to the ground would be somehow helping the uh, folks stay safe out there. And and we've seen this reluctance in a number of localities throughout the country. And I think that's that's basically what the president is reacting to. Yeah, I've got to go back to this uh, just um, remarkable turn in our culture. Five years ago, Stephanie Rawlings Blake, the then mayor of Baltimore during the riots in Baltimore after the Freddie Gray incident with police. uh, She said, we also gave those who wish to destroy space, which to destroy space to do that as well. And we worked very hard to keep that balance and to put ourselves in the best position to deescalate. She was ridiculed for essentially saying there's a safe space for rioters in Baltimore. And of course, we know what happened in Baltimore in terms of the incidents of violent crime after she abdicated her responsibility and uh, basically gave license to rioters and and to violence. She was ridiculed five years later. That has been the policy in every big city in America to date. Uh, That's right. That's right. No, it was a horrible precedent then. It's a terrible precedent now, but but made worse by the the way that the, the condition of the country in some ways, Dan, because we've got you know, 40 million people unemployed across this country, there's are not jobs for people to be fired from, right? There's no uh, other things going on. So when you see places across the country erupt into, you know, quote unquote, riot safe spaces where people are not being held accountable for looting stores and burning things down and destroying their own communities, it spreads. And uh, unfortunately, what we've seen over the last five days, has been absolutely horrifying particularly for minority uh, businesses and communities across our country who have worked decades to try to make their communities more livable, better places. I, I want to pick up right there and get to this op-ed that you wrote in the Wall Street Journal about uh, the uh, recovery and uh, the full effect of the lockdowns yet to be felt, uh, what that might mean politically as we look toward the November election. More with Josh Holmes former chief of staff and campaign manager for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, right after this.
typical fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Josh Holmes, the president of Cavalry LLC, a political consulting firm, former chief of staff and campaign manager for Senate Majority Mitch McConnell. We were talking about the rioting and the protesting, and those are two very different things, as well as just sort of the underlying state of affairs with law and order. You wrote a piece in The Wall Street Journal you began to reference before the break, Josh, about the recovery and the political earthquake that could be in the offing as the lockdowns end across the country and people start to resume some normalcy to life, that there may be some people very surprised by what they can or cannot come back to in terms of their pre-pandemic life and what that might mean for November. Why don't you describe that a bit? You know, the reason I wrote the piece, part of what I do is analyze polling for corporate and political clients. And I spent about three weeks looking at polls from across the country and individual states and nationwide. And I was just really taken aback by how the numbers hadn't fundamentally shifted. There was no right track, wrong track. The question that we often ask about whether somebody thinks that the country's going in the right direction or the wrong direction, there was no fundamental change in that. There was no fundamental change in party alignment. Ballot questions on races across the country were all kind of the same. The backdrop for all of that was 40 million people losing their jobs over a period of 10 weeks. And I just found that absolutely impossible to believe that there has to be something else going on there. And so I took a second look at some of the cross tabs to try to figure out what was happening. And what was happening is that the people who were absolutely the most affected, who were in a middle to low income station in life and didn't have the sort of resources to fall back upon, their economic situation hadn't fundamentally changed. They passed the CARES Act and was signed into law in early April, which provided direct relief. You had small businesses being flooded with capital to keep people on payroll, there wasn't this fundamental change in people's paychecks. And so what the conclusion that I came to is that there was an awful lot of people who were living in an illusion that everything was the same as it was in February because their personal economic situation hadn't fundamentally changed. And the conclusion I came to is that when people begin to understand that this is a very different economic climate than the one that we entered into at the beginning of the COVID crisis, that there would be significant cultural and economic tensions across the country that would turn this election on its head. What I didn't think about is what the trigger would be. And the day that this article posted was the day that the protests began across the country. And I think you can see very clearly that what has started with protests in cities across this country with a very real situation of racial injustice has now morphed into something far beyond that. And there's this natural tension that has grown into it. And I think it's a real tinderbox that unfortunately we've got to work very hard to try to defuse. Well, right. I mean, from lockdown to burn down. And we've seen this before. And the political implication was to the benefit of Richard Nixon in 1968, for example. Ross Dothat wrote about this in the New York Times as well, uh, talking to um, a, a Princeton poli professor. And basically, look, peaceful protests, civil disobedience, like the civil rights era led by Reverend King, that's one thing that has great persuasive capacity when there's clear injustice. When it turns to violence and you attempt to remedy perceived injustice with injustice 
and uh, making victims of people who are innocent of even the accusation of being unjust, then you lose people. That's what's happened just over the last 72 hours. No question about it. I mean, we're still fundamentally a law and order country, right? The social contract still exists in communities across the country, and people don't want the just sort of lawlessness. The, the great irony, I think, from the, the liberal point of view and what you've seen from folks creating a quote-unquote safe space for rioting is that their view globally is that government really ought to do it for you. And so what we've been living in since the beginning of March is a a country where you're told when you can go out and eat at a restaurant, when you can go back to work, we'll send you checks in the mail to sort of sustain your family. That is socialism, right? That is basically their view of how things ought to operate. And so you couple that with then an uprising in major cities that local leaders refuse to take action upon. And all of a sudden you get the idea that maybe government isn't so good for the average American. And maybe this is inhibiting my way of providing for my family. And and honestly, if they can't take care of the safety of our country, what are they doing here? I think, again, there's going to be an awful lot of social uprisings far beyond just what we're seeing right now. And so how does your boss and, and other Republicans, including the president, your former boss, uh, Mitch McConnell, and other Republicans, including the president, navigate this? Because if uh, uh, what you were, were writing about in your piece, you know, 77 percent of people think they're coming back to their jobs after the lockdowns end and, and after these cities are rebuilt to some extent. And many of those people are wrong. And you're looking at double digit unemployment in a lot of states for many, many months, if not years, depending on the pace of the recovery. Then there's going to be a clamor for, you know, the what you've already seen, which is more checks, more money printing, more welfare state growth. And so how do Republicans navigate that? Yeah, I think there's three components to it. The first is you got to make sure that there's a basic safety net there for people. And that's unemployment insurance. Got to make sure that people don't have absolutely nothing to fall back upon. I mean, in February, people were provided and having a, a great life with an economy that was breaking records. And fast forward three months and you really don't have much of anything. That just can't happen. But the second piece of this is you've got to have incentives to go back to work. You have to have, you cannot, as currently is the case, be incentivized to continue to take higher levels of dollars from being unemployed than you would be employed. And so I think what they're going to need to do on the federal side is to create incentives for businesses to open up, provide liability protections for those businesses to feel like they're not going to be sued into oblivion by trying to do business in the United States again, and and allow employees to come back to work. Uh, That's that's a critical component. And then the third piece is we got to have an honest conversation about where it is that we're going. We can't pretend like we're living in the economy we were in in February. Everybody's going to need to tighten their belts. Everybody's going to need to to really work hard. That means upper middle class Americans are going to have to sacrifice here. People are going to have to Mm. uh, work collectively to try to figure out how to drag our economy forward back to the point where we were in February. And and honest to God, Dan, I don't think it's going to be that difficult for us to get back to an incredibly robust economy. But it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a period of time. And we have to have an honest conversation with people about what that looks like. He is Josh Holmes, president of Cavalry LLC, a political consulting firm and a former chief of staff and campaign manager for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Josh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. Take care.
the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And there are stories coming in from around the country over the weekend, of course. And um, this one from Richmond, Virginia, one of the more poignant, uh, speaking to just how dangerous the situation is, uh, just how, how thin the lines are. A uh, group of protesters setting fire to a few buildings in Richmond, including a multifamily residence that was occupied by a child at the time. Listen to Richmond Fire Chief William Smith explain what they found and the uh, problems they encountered, the fire department, in responding to the blaze. There's one incident I think is particularly poignant that truly illustrates the seriousness of the issues that we're facing. Last night, protesters intentionally set a fire to an occupied building on Broad Street. This is not the only occupied building that has been set fire to over the last two days. But they prohibited us from getting on scene. We had to force our way to make a clear path for the fire department. Protesters intercepted that fire apparatus several blocks away with vehicles and blocked that fire department's access to the structure fire. Inside that home was a child. Officers were able to officers were able to help those people out of the house. We were able to get the fire department there safely. Sorry. But when you take a, a legitimate issue and hijack it for unknown reasons, that is unacceptable to me, it's unacceptable to the Richmond Police Department, unacceptable to the city of Richmond. Uh, absolutely it is. And uh, thankfully, uh, the mayor of Richmond, LeVar Stoney, Democrat, uh, echoed the chief sentiments there. It doesn't seem complicated, but boy, I mean, think about uh, the recklessness, rec- talk about reckless disregard for human life and the response, the rioting, begetting vigilante justice, the danger of that. Now, I'm not proposing it. I'm cautioning against it. But that's how that's how uh, volatile the situation is. And I don't know why you can't have more mayors like LeVar Stoney in Richmond, Democrat, or like Keisha Lance Bottoms of Atlanta, Speak with moral clarity about violence. Why, why is it not difficult for these individuals and it's so much more difficult for the leftist intelligentsia on TV? If you care about this city, then go home. Mm-hmm. And Mayor Bottoms concluded. This is not the legacy of civil rights in America. This is chaos and we're buying into it. This won't change anything. We're no longer talking about the murder of an innocent man. We're talking about how you're burning police cars on the streets of Atlanta, Georgia. Go home. She's a Democrat. She's uh, a Joe Biden VP shortlister, too, and maybe moving up that list quickly uh, because uh, she was one of the more impressive mayors over the weekend. Um, And I don't have to agree with her politics to say what is true, and that's the truth. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Uh, Systemic racism is one of the uh, phrases that pays for those trying to contextualize violence as Patrick Gaspard did over the weekend. Gaspard is a former uh, ambassador to uh, South Africa, if I'm remembering correctly, during President Obama's tenure. Also was a political affairs uh, flack for the Obama administration. And then he got the gig uh, heading up the uh, Open Society Foundation. This is uh, George Soros-backed nonprofit. And uh, here's what uh, Gaspard had to say about this uh, notion that there's just a you know a few bad apples that the that Derek Chauvin the officer who killed George Floyd uh, is just uh, one of a few bad apples and it's not indicative of a systemic corruption systemic racism in uh, police departments around the country Patrick Gaspard on with Clinton Foundation donor zero on this week as a black man in America watching those videos gives me profound uh, PTSD let's start with that Amy Cooper video that's days before we saw what happens poor George Floyd Amy Cooper understands something that Americans have understood for a really long time but we don't talk about it publicly there's a different demand on the citizenship of African Americans than on the citizenship of white Americans policing in white America Uh, exists on a consent line, consent between uh, those who are governing and those who are being governed. There's a respect for white citizenship that's based on a sense of authenticity. Amy Cooper knows there's no respect for black citizenship, and she can pick up that phone and she can say an African-American man who's an innocent birder in Central Park is threatening her because she knows what's going to be visited upon him uh, and what's been visited upon us for generations. It's interesting because um, the uh, Cooper, uh, who is the bird watcher, the gentleman in the case, uh, when she said, I'm going to call police, he just filmed her and said, go ahead. So I, I don't know, even though he also a champagne socialist like Amy Cooper is, you know, these were two um, uh, individuals at the left. He didn't seem all that afraid. He didn't seem to think that uh, her calling the police was going to result in uh, his beating or death, that there was a different responsibility and that she was praying on that. He may have joined in that analysis after the fact, but he certainly didn't convey any fear about her calling police. And by the way, um, how was that received in society in general, white, black, and other? Uh, Did people rally to the defense of Amy Cooper? Hardly. Gaspard continued. We've been hearing that term for generations, those of us who've been engaged in the work of uh, reform and opening access in communities. This is not about bad apples. This is about systemic rot, uh, and it's about devaluation of one group of citizens who unfortunately lose liberty uh, and lose limb. Mm -hmm. Systemic uh, racism, systemic rot, as he said, but that's what he means. Uh, And um, yet we see... uh, over the weekend, two lawyers arrested in a Molotov, Molotov cocktail attack on police in Brooklyn. Woman, 27-year-old woman, uh, arrested at the George Floyd protest through Molotov cocktail at four NYPD policemen. So um, is, um, is that part of rot, too, among uh, those uh, third-generation civil rights types, or at least those who fashion themselves as such? Uh, as compared to the 
their forerunners, uh, Reverend King and the civil disobedience movement of the 60s. And, and, and with respect to police, the institution, do you think there was a greater prevalence of uh, racial animus among police officers in the 60s as compared to 2020? Or do you think it's more now? Do you think we're, we're are we stuck in the 60s or have we advanced significantly with respect to uh, racial understanding and tolerance and appreciation for one another? Generally speaking, there's always exceptions. No, I just don't know that uh, Mr. Gaspard's case holds up very well with respect to police in general or his cultural commentary specifically. For more on this topic, pleased to be joined by Seth Barron, associate editor of City Journal and project director of the New York City Initiative at the Manhattan Institute. Seth, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Uh, and I really appreciated uh, your, your comments there. Uh, you made some excellent points. Just backing up for a second to the story of the birder in Central Park. Yeah, not only was he not afraid when she said she was going to call the police and said, yeah, go ahead, please call the police. Yeah. Please call them. Well, for one, the police didn't come. Right. It sounds like they hung up on her. I don't, or, or they came. I, not like there was any, anything bad happened. But also, he was threatening her. People keep talking about how, or Gaspard was saying that he was this perfectly innocent guy. He said to her, you can do what you like, but I'll do what I like, and you won't like it. Now, the idea of a man telling a woman in a deserted part of Central Park, I'm going to do something that you won't like, is terrifying. So to me, that's an out-and-out threat. So her calling the police sounded entirely justified. But uh, to your bigger point, yes, is racism now worse than it was in the 60s? Are the police more brutal now than they were back then? If you listen to Patrick Gaspard, who, may, may I point out, is a close and long-term associate of our mayor, Bill de Blasio, in New York City, uh, yeah, things have gotten much worse, or they're, they're just as bad. Even though, you know, back then there were actually laws, if you want to talk about structural systemic racism, that implies that there's laws in place uh, preventing black people from advancing. There are no such laws anymore. Uh, in fact, just the opposite. And police, firemen, all levels of society work very hard and invest a lot of resources in improving the status of black people. Um, so this idea that somehow racism is now worse, it doesn't make a lick of sense. And, you know, and just speaking of resources, too, I mean, again, uh, we talked about a bit earlier in the program. Um, there are uh, definitely outside agitators and organizers uh, you know, people dropping off piles of rocks and other uh, accoutrements for uh, protesting slash rioting. I mean, really rioting. Protesters are peaceful. Uh, but but speaking of resources, you know, these groups um, uh, that are, are you know are, are historically part of uh, the sometimes peaceful protests, even if the rhetoric's aggressive. But sometimes more than that, like Black Lives Matter. Uh, there are this umbrella democracy alliance, you know, the the underwriting of the left doesn't get much attention, but it deserves them. Democracy Alliance uh, funded uh, 15 years ago by George Soros and Taco Bell heir Rob McKay uh, has totaled more than five hundred million dollars in donations from the well healed. And it's distributed through an array of organizations and to an array of organizations, including those who are uh, 
you know, professional agitators and who've been connected to uh, violent outbreaks and protests, whether it was after Ferguson or in Baltimore or now around the country. And, and I think that deserves a little bit more scrutiny than it's otherwise received. I couldn't agree with you more. There's a group in New York City called Make the Road, which bills itself as a immigrant-led, immigrant-based um, you know, community group. Uh, it gets a lot of funding from New York City and state, uh, you know, ostensibly to do literacy outreach, but it's very tied in with the Center for Popular Democracy, which is another Soros-funded, uh, open society-funded organization. And the group essentially just goes out and rabble-rouses. They were involved in the, you know, the leaders of it went and were involved in the protest against Jeff Flake. I mean, against um, Kavanaugh, the ones who, you know, bearded Jeff Flake in the elevator during right, the right, Kavanaugh right. protest. Right. These people are paid operatives, not just of the group, but by New York City itself. And, and, what, and, and just, just on New York City, too, because it's the same thing in Chicago, and we're seeing this around the country, uh, the— the individuals I guess President Trump is referring to when he calls them weak and jerks and whatnot. And that is uh, you have local uh, mayors and state governors uh, who are at odds with uh, police departments. De Blasio in New York, Lightfoot in Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Fry in uh, or Frey, whatever, however you pronounce his name, in Minneapolis. And that that's a recipe for, um, well, chaos, isn't it? Well, it's the same way that that the defense bar, again, pushed by the Soros wing, has decided to take over the prosecutions. So prosecutors in many, many cities, now San Francisco, Philadelphia, New York City, are um, leftist defense bar people have run for and won the district attorney posts. So, and, you know, they're working to decriminalize all, all kinds of laws, refusing to charge people. Everyone who's been arrested in New York City over the last five days for rioting is already back out on the street. They've all been released. Everybody's out, including the people who, um, the lawyers who firebombed, tried to firebomb the um, the police vehicle. They've got out on bail, even though they had a federal charge. He is Seth Barron, associate editor of City Journal, project director of the NYC Initiative at the Manhattan Institute. Seth, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Prof show. It's always useful to have a real-world example to explain a economic concept or fallacy. But uh, this is taking a little far to uh, offer a dissertation on Bastiat's broken windows fallacy. We'll start there with Jim Urio, CNBC contributor. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You know what I'm talking about, don't you, Jim? I do. Yes, yeah. I figured you might. That joke was just for you and me and no one else. <laughs> I can't imagine there was many who did. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so uh, why don't we start with uh, the markets. Is um, there anything short of nuclear winter that can occur that will uh, stop the ascent of the market? 
It doesn't seem so. This is really weird, but we got to keep it in perspective and, and remember what the drivers are. And it's not coincidental that this, this rally began on March 23rd. That was the day that the Fed announced unlimited quantitative easing. So the Fed and the federal government, both kind of in unison, said we will throw whatever we need to throw at, let's say, the economy. But in my mind, I think it's risk asset prices as well to keep them buoyed and keep them rallying higher. And, and that's, that's what we've seen. Now, I'm not saying for people who want to throw stones at me, I'm not saying that's the only reason. I'm saying that the lows we saw in March were, were pulling a lot of economic destruction forward and pricing it in right at that moment. And since then, we've rallied from it. But I do think the primary driver is Fed involvement. Now, this, the thing that's going on right now, you know, I've been thinking about this sitting here all morning, and it, as horrible as it is, something to knock coronavirus off of the headlines. There is a, just this weird little minor positive about that. And on the other side of all this, the fear that had been instilled in the consumer might, have been, might be lessened or forgotten a little bit. I, I, don't, I know that's probably a strange take, but I believe it's in there somewhere. Something that I think people don't have a real appreciation for. Um, you can be more profitable with fewer employees, so you can have uh, a, a less uh, optimistic employment picture and more profitable companies with better looking balance sheets. And that may be what you see happen, at least short term, coming out of this uh, lockdown and burn down. Uh, my, my sense is that uh, those 75 percent of people who think that their jobs are going to be there when the lockdown ends, about two thirds of them are in for a surprise. That, that could easily be the case, too. Um, and now, you know, we're getting to a spot now where where you know the PPE is running out to, I mean, PPP, uh, the loans. So we might see a second wave of um, of closures and some people being let, uh, let go. And it, it, that obviously saddens me quite a bit. But the, the reality of it is, is that this is going, the, re, the recovery is going to come in two stages. The first one should be relatively gradual as people start to put their heads out of their homes saying, is it safe out here? And we've seen that at you know, the restaurant openings that we've seen so far. But once it starts to gather steam, I think it could be, it could be quite fast. And I think that doesn't happen to the fall. Uh, but the landscape for uh, restaurants and, and frankly, uh, other uh, leisure businesses is going to be markedly different as we uh, start to look around, I, I suspect, in July and August. Well, I think that there's no question of that at all. I think that there's I think that restaurants and you and I've talked about this before. I think it's it's safe to say that a quarter of the restaurants are probably going to go out of business. It's probably going to be more than that. I always like to be, you know, conservative in my estimate, but I don't see how they're going to recover from this. It's a very difficult thing. Like we you know, we, we talk to our employees and our employees are so glad to get back and I and they are so understanding of the fact that we had to dig into our pockets over the last few months um, to support our business, and they're very, very appreciative of that. So we have a good thing going at our place, but I'm not sure other places do. Now, uh, just going back to the macro issue, you mentioned uh, what Powell has said, the Fed chairman, about the tools he has in his toolbox, and, and he's got $7 trillion worth of liquidity and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, th th that's still the vision for that was about 10 to 12 weeks of liquidity. So what happens if that's not enough? And uh, one a law professor who's a former federal bank regulator at George Mason Law School, uh, Tom Bartanian, argues that a, a financial revitalization fund should be stood up that could immediately act to invest in the preferred stock of large and small companies deemed vital to maintaining maximum levels of employment uh, to help 
to uh, advance the recovery and not so both in terms of liquidity uh, and as well as employment. So you don't have states like Illinois with 21 percent unemployment at present uh, looking at double digit employment uh, unemployment numbers for, you know, years potentially. You know, here's the paradox with that, and I know other central banks and other government funds uh, buy stocks, probably you know, many of them U.S. companies as well, and we've actually started buying ETFs of municipal bonds and corporate bonds as well, too. I think that on balance, it is a terrible, terrible idea. I think that, that um, when you get into the government being in the ownership on any level, it's just another step towards socialism. Today, it starts with just, yeah, you know, we're just going to buy a couple stocks from a couple companies, right. and down the road, you know, there's, the government is sitting on boards of directors. So I think it's a terrible idea, and it's a terrible idea in a couple ways. One, from what I just mentioned, two, it just disrupts the normal flow of the market. You know, market, these, the zombie companies that, you know, companies that haven't been able to meet debt loads over the last 10 years are being kept in business by by rates being held organically low. Now the company comes in and starts buying bonds, essentially, I mean, the government does, and starts essentially lending money to these companies. They're supposed to, the cycle is supposed to be that companies that are underperforming go out of business, go into bankruptcy, whatever it is, and then reform stronger and better. And companies that are well-run get stronger and better in the meantime. Anytime we start having the government come in, interrupting that normal cycle, it is a flat-out terrible thing, in my opinion. So that's a good explanation of the downside of that proposal. So what's the downside of running out of liquidity? I mean, even $7 trillion, if, uh, if, if you're looking at an L-shaped recovery and you really have uh, uh, potentially, for example, the lockdown policies leading to uh, a credit crunch in the financial sector, what's the downside well, I, there? I think, yeah, well, I think this is, this is modern monetary theory. You know, we started talking about it six or seven years ago, and the notion was that the federal government could run deficits, you know, potentially of $100 trillion for America if they're the ones who own the currency. So I think we're on that path. And what I think is that when you run out of liquidity, I don't think there's such thing. I think the Fed will continue um, to keep rates at zero, force them negative if they had to, federal government will continue to spend, and they, the, the risk which is enormous, that is not being talked about, is this cavalier attitude toward the currency. It's funny that we're talking about it today, because today the dollar has finally broke below the 9,800 level and seems to be heading lower. Nothing serious at all at this point as far as heading lower, but at some point in time it could. The biggest trade that I've been making and talking about on Twitter over the last couple of weeks is I have gold, but I also have silver. Um, Something that's going to be a proxy for fiat currencies, because that's the huge risk is that we damage our currency, and they don't seem to to count that as a risk right now, and I think they're desperately wrong. Well, so um, at what percentage do you put the risk of retracement right now? Back to 2,800. We're at 3068 now, so back to 2,800, which looks, I'm just eyeballing it on my chart here, that looks like it's about, you know, 7, 8%. I don't think we're going to, you know, cascade lower to the lows anymore. I think the worst parts are behind us. All right. Well, that's, that's somewhat optimistic. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, Jim Urio, CNBC contributor. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Take care.
Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. As uh, we spoke about last hour with Ovik Roy, America may be leading the world in uh, development of an antiviral therapy for COVID-19, uh, maybe with respect to development of a vaccine even, but certainly not necessarily with respect to uh, reopening and restoring something approximating society pre-pandemic. Uh, that uh, belongs to um, Scandinavian countries who have had schools open, for example, either throughout, as is the case in Sweden, or uh, since uh, early April for younger students, as is the case in Denmark and Finland, finding no increase in cases during the six weeks that schools have been open. And this is still a subject that is being hotly debated in this country. For more on everything that we have learned and are learning and maybe have unlearned, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, who was the founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Dr. Henry Miller, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always good to be with you, Dan. Well, let's start with um, vaccines or a vaccine and, um, you know, the sort of ever optimistic or realistic timelines and that sort of debate that goes back and forth in the public square we're still really operating under a, a 12 to 18 month time frame as a possibility, are we not? Well, that's if you are a believer in happy talk. Okay. Uh, the, the realities of vaccine development are pretty sobering. And the good news here is that we have scores of candidates in uh, development and more than a dozen now in actual clinical trials. But um, th there are a lot of obstacles along the way. There's a saying in uh, science that there are a thousand ways to do an experiment wrong. And from my experience at FDA, watching uh, industry go through this laborious process, industry, especially relatively young, inexperienced companies, they manage to find a lot of those ways. Well, um, but just with, with respect to that, what's your sense? Because I, I've heard varying uh, opinions on this uh, from molecular biologists and public health professionals on, on the program in terms of like, you know, based on what we know about the virus, should we be optimistic about a vaccine, a, su a successful vaccine at some point, forget the timeline for a second, or should we be as pessimistic about a vaccine for this as we are everything else, knowing that it's, you know, it's a one in six, one in seven shot? No, I think we should be cautiously optimistic. Eventually, what's not generally known is that there are several coronavirus vaccines already approved, but these are for cows and dogs. So what that tells you is that the technologies are there and the, the immunity is there, although the, uh, the canine vaccines need to be administered every year. So it is doable, but the process for humans, especially for a, a vaccine that's gonna be used potentially in hundreds of millions of healthy people, is laborious and it's difficult to speed up some aspects of it. So the aspects that are being accelerated are that manufacturing facilities are being built now so that if and when some of these prime candidates prove to be safe and effective, we won't have to then start building 
bricks and mortar facilities to produce them, they'll be ready and we'll already potentially even have in hand hundreds of millions of doses ready to go once FDA has approved it. But the clinical trials for this kind of vaccine need to be performed in tens of thousands of subjects controlled clinical trials, and there are a number of possible glitches there. Yeah, including, uh, I mentioned this last hour with Ovik Roy, including uh, the curious uh, position Oxford researchers were in last week of sort of rooting for the virus to stick around in a little bit longer because they're worried about having enough uh, uh, subjects on which to perform the clinical trials for their vaccine. Yeah, I don't know that I would say rooting. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, but I, yes. but no, your your point is a good one. Um, of course, in the simplest form, what you do is you have a, a vaccine-treated group and a placebo group uh, in, that is an inactive uh, vehicle, and then uh, you see how many in each group develop the infection. Uh, in order to have enough statistical power for for that to be meaningful you have to have infections in the placebo group in order to show a statistical difference. But, but if, you, if, if, the, if the virus infections peter out, then you don't get that statistical power and your trials are pretty much worthless. When we come back with Dr. Henry Miller, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the development of an antiviral therapeutic for COVID-19, as well as a larger discussion on the progression of reopening. More with Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute and founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology, right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, and the founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the state of play with a vaccine. Uh, now let's talk about um, uh, antiviral therapy. Uh, there was a report over the weekend that uh, Gilead's product, Remdesivir, was still showing uh, promise in uh, phase three clinical trials. And, and again, um, measured, saying uh, it some some pr- provided moderate improvement in patients uh, in, in phase three, at least that was the top line. And I wonder what you think about uh, uh, the development of an antiviral, the prospects of that, and how much of a, of a real game changer any antiviral could be pending a vaccine. Well, uh, the, the promise of, a, of a good antivirals as opposed to vaccines in the short term uh, is very good. And uh, remdesivir is is the leader here, uh, as you uh, intimated, in phase three trials. It uh, it shortened the time of, of hospitalization in severely ill patients. And uh, the improvement in uh, mortality, that is, uh, ability to prevent deaths, was not quite statistically significant. But most of us in the uh, medical community, I think, think that uh, if there had been more patients, we'd have gotten to statistical power and we'd have shown significance. So uh, that's, a, that's a useful drug. Uh, there are a number of other approaches. 
uh, there is a, a collecting plasma from uh, convalescent uh, COVID-19 patients uh, and using that plasma because it contains neutralizing antibodies that can prevent infection or lower viral load. Uh, and those, those studies are looking pretty good. We don't have uh, quite enough data from randomized controlled clinical trials, but uh, the early trials of that are good. And those trials are being done uh, at Hackensack Medical Center in New Jersey, which was the subject of a 60-minute segment just uh, last Sunday. Uh, and at University of California, San Francisco, and other institutions. So that's uh, quite uh, promising. Um, there are a whole lot of other uh, antivirals uh, in, uh, in trials in, and also uh, some purified antibodies that uh, would be used therapeutically. So um, uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic about various antivirals being of uh, different benefit. Uh, last week, uh, ABC News uh, reported that of the 21 states that have uh, reopened since May 4th, not a single one has shown an increase in caseload, uh, fatality, or hospitalization. And I wonder if you think that the uh, reopening is progressing as quickly and sensibly as it could be. Well, th that's a difficult question. There have been uh, a few local surges, uh, which is what we expected. Um, but um, uh, there, there are I think there are certain uh, principles, certain practices that are going to be with us for a while. And I think uh, masks where uh, people congregate and enclosed uh, settings um, are going to be uh, quite important. Um, those hygienic mess, um, um, measures that we've heard a lot about, frequent hand washing, 20 seconds and so on, I think are going to be with us for a while. Um, and uh, and I, I don't think that we're going to see uh, 300 people in uh, movie theaters or uh, 100,000 in stadiums for a while. Um, but we have to uh, begin to reopen and we have to do it sensibly in a way that's based on evidence. One thing I want to emphasize is that the the, the, the life's mission of a, of a virus or any, uh, any microorganism is to survive and to proliferate. And this virus doesn't care that our patience is running out or that we're getting tired of not being able to go back to life as normal. And so I think we need to be disciplined uh, about certain measures that need to be taken. And it needs to be done in a scientific way and not based on uh, on public opinion polls or public sentiment. What about uh, the uh, matter of uh, sending kids back to school in the fall, uh, particularly those in uh, sort of the prim primary and secondary grades? Well, I, I think that that can, we're, I should say we're accumulating evidence that that can be done uh, cautiously. There's an interesting study from the Netherlands that shows that uh, the virus uh, doesn't often infect kids. And uh, even when it does, they tend not to uh, transmit the virus often to adults. Mm -hmm. And that isn't, for me at least, an unexpected result. Mm. Uh, their their uh, data showed an interesting scatter plot that showed that the virus is most often transmitted from uh, a person in one age group to others in the same age group.
So uh, since kids tend to be resistant, uh, schools should not be a major vector, uh, at certainly um, uh, grade school and middle school level. As, as we uh, look back at what we know now versus where we were, say, in mid-March, uh, do the, uh, the lockdowns uh, uh, treating everybody the same as opposed to uh, the vulnerable, those in long-term care facilities, plus those that are older with comorbidities, you know, the sick versus uh, everybody, uh, do those look like uh, bad policy choices in retrospect? Well, they, they, looked, uh, they were reasonable at the time. But, you know, we're in what the military would call the fog of war very much. We certainly were a couple months ago, and in some respects we are still. Uh, So you make decisions uh, based on the data that you have at the time. And uh, they were conservative and reasonable decisions. There are certain things we certainly should have done better, which was monitoring and monitoring uh, long-term care facilities and ensuring that the practices there were better than they are uh, routinely. So, uh, you know, again, you change your strategy on the basis of the data you have. He is Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, and founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Dr. Miller, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And after a, a dismal weekend, uh, let's try to find something to end that uh, provides some inspiration or at least aspiration. And uh, to help us do that, we rely on the Daughters of St. Paul. Uh, our, the sisters uh, in Chicago are safe, but our bookstore was broken into and looted last night during the riots. Please pray for our sisters and pray for peace. Tweeted out Sister Bethany. There's something I never thought I'd say. Tweeted out and uh, oh, Sister Sister Bethany, but uh, great use of social media. The Daughters of St. Paul, they have a bookstore, Pauline's Bookstore on Michigan Avenue right downtown. And uh, the rioters broke their storefronts, raided their stores. Uh, the uh, Daughters of St. Paul cleaned up the broken glass the next day, and um, they had this as a reaction, The um, uh, one of the sisters. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of confusion and many conflicting messages. Uh, and um, how do you feel? It's uh, This is Sister Tracy Mathia Dugas of the Daughters of St. Paul. How do you find your peace in the midst of all that? And now what we're dealing with is this question of violence and how do you deal with that? All we can do is bring them Jesus and the gospel and his word and allow him to speak to them. So what we're trying to do is foster every person, every child of God to know God as a good father who will provide. Uh, They're uh, taking uh, this uh, unfortunate vandalism they suffered in stride and uh, receiving it as uh, even a more... uh, uh, important motivator for their evangelism. 
Um, so, you know, that's great. And, of course, we will pray for peace along with the sisters. And speaking of uh, All Matters Holy, I wanted to uh, remind people to uh, check out Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus. This is a documentary that presents convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. This is the work of investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt and Israel and throughout the world to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? The results of his investigation are monumental. Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus at home, along with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. And uh, the Exodus uh, also includes a panel discussion moderated by Gretchen Carlson, featuring our very own Dennis Prager, our very own Eric Metaxas, as well as Anne Graham Lotz. So uh, check out Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, and others in the series. Make sure uh, Tim Mahoney's excellent work doesn't go unrecognized. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. Thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show, and please do so again tomorrow. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.